media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.corner-stone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. As you're seated this morning, open your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. As I said before, uh, in the past, I've always preached this as three different sermons, this particular text. Uh, I want to do it as one this morning. I may never do that again. I may find out that that wasn't the best way to approach this text. But there is something that uh, I believe that we see in the value of, of looking at all this, because I do believe that there's a strong correlation and intersection there that was intentional. Uh, nothing in the Word of God is not intentional. It's not there just kind of thrown in. It was with great purpose that Christ lived his life, and it's with great purpose that we have these recordings, these gospels of the life of Christ. Uh, uh, can we show that next slide? What, what's, if you had to caption this, what would you, uh, the most simple caption would you put there? Mind blown. Yeah. It's one of those things that we, we use that, you know, when we're talking about something that is to the contrary of our regular belief. You know, we may say, man, that just blows my mind. We may even do that expression of just, man, my mind was blown by this truth or whatever it is. Well, this morning, I think that accurately kind of describes what we're going to see in the disciples and those around them. Because what Christ says this morning really conflicts with a culture that was established in those days. And even, I would say, more so in the culture uh, that we have established today. And I'm not talking about just the secular culture. I'm actually talking about the Christian culture. And uh, it has a lot to do with the songs that we just sang about uh, this obedience and this surrender that, uh, you know, sometimes we put so much emphasis on that as being the emphasis of our salvation. <laughs> and, folks, it, it has nothing to do with our salvation. Christ is everything about our salvation. Surrender and obedience is the fruit of what he establishes in our heart and our life. And I think he be, when we look through this passage, we begin to see that. Now, again, there's uh, three, easily three different sermons that you could preach here because of the text. But they're linked by a, um, a common phrase that's used throughout. Remember, when we study the Bible, when we're looking at the Word of God, try to find repetitiveness. When you see a word that's mentioned more than once... There's kind of a purpose for that. When you see it mentioned three or four times, there you can know that there's purpose there. When you see it like this morning, five different verses linked together, you're going, okay, this was intentional. This was very purposeful. Now, what is this phrase this morning? The kingdom of God. We're in Mark chapter 10, starting with verse 13 and going through verse 31. You're going to see that in verse 14 and verse 15 and verse 23, verse 24, and 25, three different sections, probably in your Bible. A lot of Bibles kind of take the stories and kind of the storyline and they break it up into, okay, here's about Jesus and the little children. Here's Jesus and the rich young ruler. Oh, here's the disciples afterwards. And yet this phrase connects these three, I think, with great, great purpose. What, what is the kingdom of God? What is this that he's talking about? Well, we could answer that in a lot of different ways. We could talk about eternal life. We could talk about salvation. We can talk about those things. I think it means truly following Christ. That the kingdom of God is those who are truly following Jesus Christ. Not just those who go to church, not those who try to ascribe uh, to a moral preference in their life and all those things. Certainly there is virtue and there is 
uh, a morality that God has called us to. There's obedience to the commandments of God, for example. And so we see a lot of these things, but basically, I, I think that if we were just talking in everyday language, the kingdom of God is made up of the people that God has saved through that finished work of Christ. And this passage opens up with people bringing Jesus uh, their little children. This would have not have been unusual for the culture in the time. Jesus, Jesus, by this time, is known as a rabbi. Okay, he's a traveling rabbi going around. And it was not unusual whatsoever if you were in this little town and a rabbi came, whether he was the resident rabbi or if he was the one that was kind of traveling through and taught on that particular Sabbath, to bring your children and want that rabbi to bless them. It was not unusual whatsoever. And so we see this happening even with Jesus. I don't know that every one of those parents believe that he is the Savior sent from God, the Messiah, but they know that he's a rabbi. And so they're bringing the children to him. Look what it says, verse 13 and 14. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. Man, get the kids away. Okay, come on. He's got a very important things to do here. So they rebuke him. That's a pretty strong word that's used there, okay? Now look at verse 14. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant. Is that a pretty strong word? So they kind of have this strong emotion. They're not just kind of, oh, come on, he's kind of busy, kind of shoo away, go play ball, go do this. No, they were rebuking the people. Will you stop bringing your children over here to be all over Jesus? He's got important things to do. And Jesus was just as indignant, that is, equal in his response, and said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for such belongs, what? The kingdom of God. There's that phrase. The first time we see it in this particular passage. What is the kingdom of God? This is the people that... That God is saved. This is eternal life. This is, I mean, I guess we could put a lot of terms there, but this kingdom of God are the authentic followers of God. And he said, they're going to be made up with people that are not childish, but childlike. Is he saying that all children go to heaven? I don't know that that's the statement that he's making. Any more than we're going to find out a little bit later when this guy who's called the rich young ruler comes along, that he's saying, okay, you're not going to heaven, and it's because rich people don't go to heaven. I, he's not making either one of those statements. Children go to heaven, rich people, you don't. No. This kingdom of heaven question is a really big one. It's probably the most important question of your life. Are you part of the kingdom of heaven? Will you go to heaven one day? Are you the part of the kingdom of God? Are you saved? There's a lot of different ways that we can talk about this, that we can phrase that. I think that would be accurate in its reflection of this kingdom of God. And ultimately, isn't it kind of the most important question and factor of your life? There's a whole bunch of factors in your life. Married, not married. Young, old. What do you do for a living? Oh, do you have children? There's a lot of things that describe us. But the ultimate description and the ultimate really character about characteristic about us that is that is going to be eternal in nature, do we know God or not? Are we part of the kingdom of God or not? Now, don't get me wrong. I believe that everybody will live eternally. People go, I don't know. That's a, no, everybody will live eternally. I, I believe that's what the Bible teaches. But it's either going to be with God or separated from God. But we will, you know, just, you know, it's not just... The people go to heaven, everybody else just has, you know, kind of 
annihilation. No, I, the Bible teaches that there is eternal life for everybody. The whole thing is, is it going to be in the presence of God, with God? Are we part of the kingdom of God? Are we not part of this kingdom? The most important factor of our life, guys. Out of all the description about you, are you a part of this? And so here we open up this story, and these people are coming, and the disciples rebuke the little kids coming. Jesus is indignant, let them come. It's not like the disciples didn't like children. I think that they liked children, and that Jesus really, really liked children. I think he did. Now, the point of this whole beginning of the picture is that Jesus is about to, pardon the the term, blow their minds of what does it really mean to be part of the kingdom of God. And that day and time, children were loved, they were appreciated, but they really were not thought of as, you want to say, important in the sense of until they reached adulthood. They just didn't have a lot of cultural standing uh, in the Old Testament, in, in the New Testament times. Children are children. We've become quite a children-centric world. And we have really elevated, I'm not so sure biblically, (laughs) elevated the position of children to where sometimes children run the household instead of the parents who have the authority to to do that. And, And I'm not trying to make any side comment there. I'm just saying there's a biblical way that God kind of structured things. And in our particular society, we've made children such an important factor that we've actually probably elevated them beyond the natural flow that God... I'm not saying that I don't like children. (laughs) Ask me about my grandchildren, okay? I'll show you picture after picture after picture. But I'm just saying God has a structure, and right now we live in a culture that really celebrates a whole bunch on a very high level children. This was not that culture. Again, it did not mean that they did not dis, that they disliked children. It doesn't mean that they didn't love their children. They were just on this society. They, they were not the ones that really the movers and shakers. And so it's understandable where the disciples are coming from. And so it blew their mind when Jesus would come back in verse 15. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child, shall not enter it. Wow. Well, what do you mean by that, Jesus? Well, I say as we, I think as we connect it to what's going to happen after this, what we see more and more. Verse 16, And he took them in his arms, and he blessed them, laying his hands on them. Do you see that term, kingdom of God, being used throughout this passage? Do you see how it keeps on coming back up? This is the main point, and this is why I preached really three events into one event, So look what happens next. Bobby, that's all you're going to say about being like children and childlike? Yeah, because we're going to go move pretty fast. I told you we were. Verse 17. And as he was sitting out, setting out on his journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Pretty important question? Yeah. Probably the most important. I can't think of one more important than that. And notice that there's he ran up to Jesus. Okay, there, there's an excitement there, or there's a draw there. He's not just kind of bumping into Jesus and wants to have some kind of, you know, confrontation like the Pharisees. He actually is coming, and there's this willingness in his heart. There's this desire in the heart. There's a question that he wants answered. And he responds to the presence of Jesus. He goes to the right person, I would say that he has the right question. 
He even takes the right position. Do you notice what he does as he runs up to Jesus? What is he doing? He kneels. I mean, there's a lot of things that this guy is doing right. So, so we go, okay, this must really be a, a good guy. And he comes and he asks, what, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? I'm going to take a little bit of uh, liberty here and say that eternal life, as he phrases it there, is synonymous what Jesus was talking about with the kingdom of God. Uh, you can object to that, and we can talk about that later. You can give me a call. You can give me objections. But really, even though it's a couple, you know, a different phraseology, I really do believe that what he's talking about, and especially the way that Jesus is going to answer this, that they're kind of synonymous. And so I think that's the fifth use of that term here. And so he asked this great, great question. It comes to the right person, right question, right position. And uh, what was Jesus' answer? Look at verse 18. And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except for God alone. Now, why did he say that? There's a lot of speculation. You know, when we have questions like that or different phrases like that in the Bible, it gives... Uh, Biblical writers and pastors and theologians a lot to scratch their head over, and they kind of scratch their head over, why did Jesus respond to that? Here's my interpretation of that. The guy comes up and he, and he says, good teacher, good teacher. Doesn't call him Savior, doesn't call him the Son of God. And so Jesus comes back, not as a smart aleck, he doesn't come back, but he's kind of a, a clarifying, why do you call me good? Really, there's nobody good except for God alone. In other words, I think that Jesus is making the declaration of his deity here and that this man doesn't really maybe recognize or that. But Jesus is kind of going out there, okay, you call me good. Nobody's good except for God. I am God. He's made, Jesus is making this equivalent there. So he, he does that. And, and now look at the response. Mark 19, 10, 19. Jesus says, you know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your mother and father. He gives all the commandments that have to do with relationship with one another. And uh, and this is one of those wait for it, wait for it, wait for it kind of times. When Jesus is kind of putting it out there, and we're going to see kind of the punchline a little bit later on. It seems like on the surface that Jesus is saying to get eternal life, you have to keep the commandments. Is that true? Yes, it is. <laughs> I knew you'd get that. Don't feel bad if you said no, okay? You do. You have to, to, to inherit eternal life, you have to have perfection. Has anybody ever done that? Us. No. So we needed a savior, okay? But so he's, you know, he said, have you kept the commandments? The commandments in the Old Testament, and especially as we see reference them in the New Testament, why were the commandments given? Certainly to give us moral direction in life, but to point out our lostness. That's what the scripture tells us time and time again. Hey, these commands were given, and one of the purposes, so that you could see that you didn't keep all the commandments. And yet, look at this man's response. Verse 20. And he said to him, teacher, again, recognizing that he's a great rabbi, but maybe not significantly the savior of the world. Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. Maybe in his mind, he's thinking, great, I'm in. I got this kingdom of heaven. Now, we don't know this guy. Do you think that's an accurate statement and evaluation of himself? 
I mean, just look at the commandments. Do not murder. He probably hadn't done that, at least in the literal sense. Do not commit adultery. Maybe he had never done that, even in a figurative sense. Do not steal. I doubt that he kept that one. Do not bear false witness. Lie. You mean to tell me this guy's 25, 30, 35 years old, and he's never once, never once lied? Probably not happening, is it? But here's the thing. In comparison to other people, he was probably on a scale of 1 to 10, maybe a 9 or a 9 and a half. Would you say that there are some people on earth that are better than others? Would you say that there are some people that are actually better at keeping the commandments, moral living by the commandments, than other people? If you had to give yourself a a number between 1 and 10, would you probably say that there's people below you in your number. Let's say that you gave yourself a seven. Okay, Radley, you gave yourself a seven. Tracy only gave you a five, but you gave yourself a seven, okay? Would there be people below you that only got a two or a three? If, if this was you answering that. Yes. Would there probably be people above you that got an eight or a nine? Has anybody ever gotten a ten besides Christ? So this, this man is answering. I want you to give his frame of mind because I think sometimes we can be really critical of this guy. I think he's pretty authentic. I think he is. He runs to Jesus. He bows down. What little information he's kind of going on, he's kind of acting in a response. And I think that he truly is completely sincere in his desire. What do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Seth so says, if you came up to me and asked me that question, I would have to say, just by the nature of the question itself, hey, he's got to be pretty sincere. Jake, if you came up and said, hey, we were talking the other night, and, and we were well, what do you have to do to inherit eternal life? I would say, think that's just sincerity, just based on the nature of that very question. That's kind of a deep question, isn't it? It's a big question. So I, th- I think this guy is somewhat sincere, but I also think that there's a place where he's sincerely wrong. And that is his evaluation of where he stands before a holy God. I'm thinking that this is the guy that you and I would want for our neighbors. I'm thinking this is the guy that if he started coming to Cornerstone Church and said, man, we need him. In fact, let's make him a, a deacon or a this or a that or whatever. I think this guy really would have shown out. I think he was probably a very good guy in the sense of goodness in comparison to other people. I don't have any reason not to believe that. And yet this calculation is one of his own finding, or one based on him evaluating himself with other people. He probably could list uh, a list of credentials. I mean, I could take any one of you, and I can say, man, here's a list of credentials. Here's where I just see Christ in their life. I could start going down and say, man, here's what I see the fruit of Christ and the Holy Spirit working actively in your life. But that's a fruit from, not a root to. And this is the distinguishing factor. That you and I are able to have fruit from the work of Christ. But we don't have fruit that gains us the work of Christ. Does that make sense? I don't know, Bobby, you know, if you really are sincere. No, the 
Bible says that even my best deeds, even my best, uh, is kind of like trash before a holy God. Now, when we first hear that, is that a little offensive to you? Is it kind of mind-blowing that even our best things, that we are a 9.5 on a scale and we can, we're surrounded by a whole bunch of sixes and sevens. And so we're going, my goodness. If BJ makes it, I know I'm making it. Now if we, if we begin to, to kind of get that thought process in our mind, and yet this is the whole thing. He's coming from a perspective that is not biblically anchored. Here's where the weight for it comes. Verse 21. And Jesus looking at him loved him. He, he what? He loved him. This, this is not a retort. This is not frustration. This is not anger. This is not judgment in the sense of that. He loves this man. And yet, how does he respond? You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor. And you'll have a treasure in heaven and come follow me. Let me start with what Jesus is not saying. That if you give everything that you have... <laughs> to some missionary endeavor that you're automatically going to go to heaven, okay? That you have a mass during your lifetime, $500,000. And you wrote a check for $500,000 to, you know, whatever ministry out there that you can buy your way into heaven. That is not whatsoever what Christ is saying. So what is he saying? I believe this man asked a sincere question. I believe that Jesus has given him a very sincere answer. And the answer revealed this man's heart and what was in his heart. Verse 22. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful. Uh, other gospels that, that record this said that he hung his head and he was in sadness for he had great possessions. Well, was Jesus picking on him because he's rich? Was Jesus casting judgment on him because he knew that he just liked his money? No, the Bible says that Jesus loved him. And one of the hardest things, and yet one of the most loving things, no, let me correct that. One of the hardest things and the most loving thing is to speak truth in love to other people. It's hard. We want to cushion things and we want to, you know, the, the radical nature of the gospel, we want to kind of, you know, make it a little bit smoother and kind of easier and not as weighty. Jesus loves this man, and Jesus knows that the one thing that kind of stands between this man and, and commitment to, to following Christ is, is his riches, and that's where his security is. And so he picks that out. To somebody else, it would have been a whole different conversation. So he's not picking on rich people. He's not saying that you can buy your way to heaven. What he's saying is, what's your savior? Where's your security? That's a real probing question to us today, isn't it? Well, we would never be like that. Here's why I think we're challenged sometimes. Has God established family? Yes. Is family really, 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 really important? Is family our savior and our security? No. But isn't it easy in a world of harshness and disappointment and 
all kinds of stuff that, that we would just lift even family, even something that God created that is a blessing in our life, that we could kind of lift that up, that my love for my wife, her love for me, that that could be our security. In premarital counseling, when we go through the different lessons, one of the things I said, never make, never allow yourself to, to want your spouse to be your savior. Because you've put on them a weight that is not meant for them. It is something they could never happen. If you're looking for fullness and fulfillment in life to come through your spouse, you're looking in the wrong direction. And I followed up by saying the greatest gift I believe that you could ever give to your spouse is your own joyful walk with Christ. Because then you're full. And so then you're serving your spouse out of the overload instead of looking to be filled. Does that make sense? I promise you it's biblical. I could give you text after text, okay? But I promise you it's there. And yet, do you think that even us who mean well from time to time have looked for our joyfulness? You complete me. Sounds really romantic, but that's not biblical, guys. I can say, man, you have added to all the riches of Christ, and I'm so thankful that he's called you to be my wife, and we can make that a treasure of what it is in God's creation because he meant for it to be a treasure and that we're going to make much of marriage, but it's not our salvation, and it certainly isn't our security. Does that make sense? You see, a lot of us will say, well, I'm glad I'm not like the rich young ruler. I'm going, why do you say that? Well, I'll never be rich. And so we kind of discard this whole thing that we're not going to fall into the temptation. But I promise you that every one of us can put something there. Jesus loved him enough, knew him well enough. I mean, what what does a doctor do? You go, okay, I'm, I've been hurting this, that, and the other. And, and a good, really good trained doctor can get there. Okay, does this hurt? No. Does this hurt? No. Does this hurt? Does this hurt? Yes. And it hits that spot, and it helps that doctor diagnose. Oh, this is probably what it is. The master physician here hits the very position. Does this hurt? Yes. And so he walks away sad. Look at the response. Verse 23 and 24. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it is uh, it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Now, that does seem like a pretty blanket statement about rich people. But just think through the human dynamics of that. In, In our riches, when we have a lot of provision, we find security in that. Well, man, if this economy really gets bad, I'm glad that I've had 5.7 million stacked away just in case. And so there's just a natural human tendency that if we have big supply, that we don't feel vulnerability. And so what he says is true. He's not picking on rich people. He's just talking about a truism of human nature. Does that make sense? Okay. And the disciples were... Now, why were they amazed? If we just said that this was a truthful statement based on human nature, why were they amazed? Because the Jewish people, much like Judeo-Christian thought process today, equivalated blessings and sometimes financial blessings with the blessings of God, the favor of God. 
You go back in New Testament times, if you had leprosy, it's because you have done sin in your life and this is why you have that. And you are rich and you're young and you're a ruler. Oh my goodness. God's smiling on you, brother. And this was their thought process. And you go, okay, that was 2,000 years ago. We still have it today, guys. That's why the prosperity gospel somewhat has influence on people because they, they kind of get that mindset. But even if you're not part of that mindset of the prosperity gospel, they're still a part of us when we see bad things happen. Oh man, you know, they must have done something. And when good things happen, that somehow we think that this is God's blessing. But the word of God says it rains on the just and the unjust. In other words, life is pretty unpredictable. And the only predictable thing is, is the security that we have through Jesus Christ. Jesus then paints a word picture. <laughs> Look at verse 24. He says, And they were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children. Why does he call them children? <laughs> Let's connect it back to what it was just said before, when there were actual children of age. Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. And then he points a, uh, paints this word picture uh, that is quite humorous. In verse 25, It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Is it an indictment on rich people? And if so, what is that breaking point? Only a million and plus? Well, with inflation, five million plus? See how ridiculous if we try to make this about money? It's not. He is making a human nature statement that I think is categorically 100% accurate and true. And so we come back, Mark 26. He says this, and they were already amazed, but now look. And they were exceedingly astonished. (laughs) They were mind blown, and now it's like if they had two minds, like a double explosion. Because this is contrary to their thought process, a cultural process, a thought process, a Jewish thought process what they would consider kind of a spiritual thought process. And they were exceedingly astonished, and they said, then who can be saved? What a great question. From their reference point, hey, if this guy who looks like he's a 9.7 on a scale of 1 to 10, better than anybody else, anybody would want him as a neighbor, anybody would want him as a church member, everybody would want this guy. If this guy doesn't make it, then what hope do I have? Have you ever met somebody like that? That they made you wonder if you really are a Christian or not? <laughs> they just, they had joy, they had this, whatever, and they their command. If that's what being a Christian is, ah, man, I don't, I wonder if I'm really a Christian. Well, that wasn't quite the circumstance here, but we've all had that experience before, like, oh my goodness, am I really saved? Because this person is just like oozing the Holy Spirit. And do I ooze the Holy Spirit? No, I, I think I may ooze a little bit of ESPN and a little bit of this and a little bit of that, and here's what's oozing from my life. And we begin to question. And they question. Then who can be saved? I think their question reflects their confusion. I think it reflects their fear. And look at the response in verse 27. Probably one of the most misused, misquoted verses in all the Bible. And Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. And we have so 
misused that. The prosperity gospel extremely misuses this. I'm not so sure in the evangelical church that we haven't misused this. In context, what is Jesus saying? Man, all your efforts, man, mankind, all your efforts, it is impossible to inherit the kingdom of God. But what I'm about to do when I reach Jerusalem and I die on that cross and I rise on the third day with God, it is possible for you to inherit eternal life. He's already pointing to the work that he's about to do. That's the context. That's the context of that verse. So next time you just kind of want to flip off that kind of uh, context and go, oh, yeah, all things are possible with God, and you're using it you know, to win the baseball game, please don't. Don't, okay? Because it's not the context of it. So we ran through this passage really, really fast. And there's tons of things that we could point out that are relevant the high value that Jesus places on children. We're about to have VBS. And what a great text there that you could say, Christ highly values children, and he does. And we are to love on these children in a couple of weeks, and we will. But that's not the point of it. Be careful that you don't think too much of yourself and your own goodness. That's a valid, valid point there. Humble yourself before a holy God. That's, that's really good. Don't rely on your riches or anything else for your security in life. That's, that's a good lesson there. But when we really reduce it down to one major point, I, I believe that what blew the minds of the disciples and the others that day is how does one have eternal life? How do you become a part of the kingdom of God? And to answer that, look back to the two answers that Jesus gave. Verse 15 and verse 27. Verse 15, he said, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Not childishness, not immaturity, not an age, but understanding a heart. Childlike faith. When we used to go to grandma's when I was little, 600 miles we were going to travel. I get in the back seat with my baseball cards, my army men, and maybe a couple other things. We didn't have tablets in the day, so I couldn't play, you know, anything like that. And I'm just back there with things. And I did not worry if dad had enough gas, if he had this. Do we have, you know, my dad's driving, and I can trust him. I, I'm childlike faith. I'm like, they're having the time of my life. All I know is, are we there yet? Simple, childlike trust that the one driving, my dad, had a plan and was working the plan. How inappropriate it would have been for me to sit there with a laundry list of, did you get gas? Do you know where you're going to get gas next? Do you, did you, did you change the oil in the car? Did you, all these other things. No. My dad's in control. So part of this childlike faith is the simplicity of childlike faith and trusting the Father. Trusting for what? For our salvation. Because look at the next part, verse 27. Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all these things are possible with God. Christ was about to go to a cross and die for the sins of man. For the ones that were 1.2 on the morality scale to the ones that were 9.8s, all fallen short of the glory of God. 
all needing salvation. And that's what blew their minds. And to a certain measure, guys, please hear this and hear my heart on this. It still blows our mind today. It's really, really hard for us sometimes to conceive. You know, my famous person, Farmer Ted, the really good farmer that always gave his crops away and was super nice and just faithful to his wife, raised his children, did all those things, but didn't know the Christ, that he's in hell. It's really hard for us to grasp that sometimes because we see other people that supposedly are Christians and they're not nearly as good as Farmer Ted. And so here we get Farmer Ted's funeral and he's 72 years old or he's 85 years old and it just has this laundry list of credentials of what a good man he was. But if he didn't have Christ, he's not going to inherit the kingdom of God. Isn't in a way, isn't in a way that mind-blowing when we really get down to it? Especially if that was your granddaddy. Are you daddy? Are you mama? Are you grandmother? I'm not trying to be mean here, guys. I'm just saying, that's hard. That's hard. And it's still mind-blowing 2,000 years later, even after this. But that's where he comes down to. So what's the answer? Ephesians 2, 8, 9. Really probably described as, as best as I as I think the Bible does, for by grace you have been saved through faith, childlike faith. It doesn't have to be this mature, mature faith where you know all the questions to the eternal, you know, questions. No, you just put your simple childlike faith in God's one and only answer, the work of his son. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, even if you had a billion works, so that no one may boast. Is that pretty clear? And so what does it call for us to do? Number one, to preach the gospel with clarity. Not a works kind of mentality but a salvation through Christ and Christ alone. And that we rest in that. And that we preach that gospel, not only to others, but we preach that gospel to ourselves. Because here, here's the double-sided coin of that. Are there going to be days that you look at somebody else who's really just messing it up, and you're going to go, well, if he's going to heaven, I know that I am. And there's going to be some days like that. But are there going to be those days where you're going, oh my goodness, if that's what it looks like to be a Christian, I, I don't have a chance. And this whole comparison thing that we do left and right, some days we win, sometimes we lose. And so God says, don't even do this. Do that. And you will find the sufficiency of a Savior who died for you. You know the beauty of that? And I've seen this happen. It's the most miraculous thing I could ever imagine. Let's say that you lived 70, 80, 90 years as a good person, didn't harm anybody, but never without Christ. And in those dying days, you trusted in childlike faith, not with great maturity and understanding and religious talk. You put your trust in your faith in the work of Christ. Guess where you're going in my understanding? You're going to live forever in heaven. Well, you know, but if, what if you were bad all your life? But yet, in childlike faith, in those 
dying days, dying weeks, you put your faith in the sufficient one, Jesus Christ. Guess where you're going? To heaven forever and ever and ever. Because it's not about us. And it's all about him. And that simple childlike faith, it's not because we know these big words. Well, you know, I've been studying, and I'm ready for the Christian test now. I found out what sanctification, justification is. I know all those shun words now. Do you know the one that was sent from God to be the propitiation, the payment, the full payment for the sinfulness of man so that as we place our trust and faith in the work that he has done, we will become part of the kingdom of God and we will inherit eternal life. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And Father, I thank you that even though this answer that uh, Jesus gave to the rich young ruler seemed harsh, Father, I believe that it was done in love because you said that he loved him. And so he told him the truth. Father, we don't know what happened to that man afterwards. Maybe he contemplated later on. I, I, I don't know. But Father, you didn't compromise. Jesus didn't say, oh, did I say all? No, go sell 50%. Kind of reduce down your assets, and, and then come follow me. No, it wasn't about money. And we see that it really wasn't about goodness. It was all about what you were going to do through your son. So, Father, today, 2,000 years later, help us not to make it about this group or that group or this or that. Father, help us to make it all about how Christ, and in Christ alone, Father, we have the hope of eternal life and we can become part of the kingdom of God we love you and we thank you Father as we pray all this in Christ's name Amen Thank you for listening today we hope this message was a blessing to you To learn more about our church or our media ministry, you can visit us online at www.corner-stone.org or find us on Facebook.